Okay, Doug, list all the hemp products you currently have in your house. <laughs> Let's see. I'm most proud of Hemp in Hemp, which is a farm-to-table product, certified organic, that I and my family have grown ourselves um, to date in Vermont. That's changing in coming years, but we also have, gosh, hemp seed oil, hemp hearts, um, hemp protein meal. Um, we have more specific CBD products as opposed to Hemp and Hemp, which is a broad spectrum, so um, quite a lot. You are listening to the Tractor Time Podcast. We are proud to be sponsored by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers and homesteaders. BCS is often mistaken for just a rototiller, but with gear-driven transmissions and dozens of professional quality implements, they truly make superior pieces of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy, where small farms are a way of life, BCS two-wheel tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment the kind of dependability every farm needs. With PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, chippers, shredders, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a high-pressure irrigation pump, BCS America can supply tools you need to get jobs done across the farm and the homestead. Even on large farms where a four-wheel tractor is a necessity, BCS two-wheel tractors can tackle jobs that simply can't be done with the larger machines. From mowing steep slopes and along pond banks to working soil and high tunnels and hoop houses. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments and watch videos of BCS in action. We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to the Tractor Time Podcast, brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, and as always, I want to say thank you to our sponsors, BCS America. In this episode, we're talking with Doug Fine. How do you describe Doug? Well, we should probably start with his work as an investigative journalist. His writings appeared in places like the Washington Post, Wired, and Outside Magazine. He's traveled all over the world, including places like Burma, Rwanda, Guatemala, and Tajikistan. He's given TED Talks. He's appeared on late-night talk shows where he talked cannabis with Conan O'Brien. And he's written several books, including Not Really an Alaskan Mountain Man, Farewell My Subaru, which is about his attempt to wean himself off of petroleum, and Too High to Fail, Cannabis and the New Green Economic Revolution. His latest book is Hempbound, and the subtitle says it all, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Next Agricultural Revolution. And for Doug, those front lines are found at the Funky Butte Ranch. That's his 40-acre spread in southern New Mexico, where he and his family grow hemp, tend a garden, and raise a herd of mischievous goats. And although Doug sees himself as a journalist first, he doesn't shy away from speaking up for what he believes in. And what he believes in is this. Hemp represents not just the next big money maker in agriculture. It's not just about cashing in on CBD oil. Instead, he thinks it's an opportunity to change the entire game and maybe fight off the effects of climate change in the process. Doug's a renegade thinker. He's funny. He talks fast. So strap in for this episode of Tractor Time. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Hemp's played this really fascinating role in early American history, and I think that might be a good place to start. Tell us a little bit about the rise and fall of hemp in the U.S. 
Since the age of exploration from a European perspective, hemp was extremely valuable. Uh, every place that Europeans went, they immediately started cultivating hemp for routine ship repairs and dry dock type stuff starting in uh, as far as nor as far as the americas is concerned 1521 i believe it was in chile so um it was a vital crop you could pay your taxes with it in colonial times thomas jefferson spoke about its importance i was lucky enough to harvest uh the first hemp crop in 200 years at george washington's mount vernon last year a wonderful administrator there the the, the lands uh fellow for half a century is this great guy named Dean, Mar uh, Dean uh, Norton. And he invited me uh, to, to take part in the harvest in colonial clothing with <laughs> sickles. And I cut my finger on the sickle. So I gave some nitrogen to Mount Vernon. And um, it, that was uh, a, an important crop, right? From colonial uh, era. The next century was very interesting. You know, there's a lot of towns named Hempfield, Hempstead, that kind of thing all over um, Pennsylvania, Long Island, New York, Midwest. But, um, the next century was interesting because the U.S. had to play catch up to uh, for quality of cultivars. And so there was industrial, uh, to be polite, borrowing that went on from places like China and uh, Russia, um, partly funded explicitly through the government, through, through almost like X prize type contests. And um, the U.S. Uh, genetics became uh, the best in the, in the world. Uh, Kentucky for a long time was a leader. Hemp was in decline pri in de uh, prior to cannabis prohibition, U.S. hemp but it was poised for a comeback. It wasn't in a massive decline. It just was not at its peak for a variety of reasons as the 30s uh, were underway, 1930s. But it was poised for a comeback. Prohibition started, cannabis prohibition started because, for a lot of reasons, but principally because um, Harry Anslinger, who had run alcohol prohibition, needed to keep himself and a lot of people employed. And they needed to find a new enemy when because alcohol wasn't the enemy anymore. So. Um, Cannabis prohibition started with the help of some some um, yellow journalism, and uh, um, the next year, Popular Mechanics ran a story saying, you know, twenty five thousand uses for hemp. Hemp was really poised for a comeback, um, and it did have a fast comeback in World War II when um, Japan captured the overseas sources of hemp that were being used for millions of tons of rigging needed for uh, naval ships, but also um, things like the uh, cord in the parachute that saved George H.W. Bush's life when he had to bail out in uh, World War II. So there was a hemp for victory uh, campaign to get farmers cultivating again, but then uh, then the same prohibition people needed their jobs after the war. So we kind of uh, folded it into the worst policy in America since segregation, which was the war on cannabis that um, uh, thankfully for everything from economy to soil to heartland to planet to climate change mitigation um, to routine aches and pains for people who want to get off a lot of their pharmaceuticals, thankfully came to an end federally, first in 2014 with a first farm bill, farm bill provision that allowed the cultivation of hemp for research purposes, which was de facto legalization. And then um, in late 2018, a new farm bill provision, which is where we are now with commercial hemp cultivation, uh, once again, legalized the industry is growing uh, hugely. It's more than doubling every year uh, by the 2019 season we're expected to be at something like, I believe it's 150,000 acres uh, in the U.S. cultivated this year, which is huge considering that it was a Schedule One uh, felony federal crime five years ago. Now, among the, the seven acres that I have in the ground in four states, 
this year. Uh, one of them is, is certified organic, which is a federal designation too. So we've come a long way, baby, uh, but we've got a long way to go because there's 237 million acres of corn, soy, uh, wheat and cotton um, with a lot of uh, herbicides and other things going into the ground. So we've got a long way to go uh, with hemp, but the industry is the fastest agricultural industry ever to reach a billion dollars um, in annual value. And we're just getting started. Before Hempbound, your last book was Too High to Fail, Cannabis and the New Green Economic Revolution. For our listeners, parse out the history of cannabis as a drug, and cannabis as an agricultural product with many uses. People still, still seem to be confused about the distinctions. Um, the end game is cannabis being considered, as it always has been for all of history until 1976, as one plant. When people were cultivating the cannabis plant uh, for textiles in medieval France, for instance, um, and when people were cultivating textiles for um, uh, rope in Kentucky in the 1880s, there was no distinction between hemp and cannabis because THC had not been isolated yet. It was grown for whatever purpose it was needed. Some people used it for textiles and ringing. Some people, uh, and that would be the fiber side of the plant. Some people ate it it for its nutritive uh, superfood properties, Um, perfect omega-9, 6 balance, and and high in in a lot of minerals that it's hard, especially for people uh, who don't eat meat to get. And some people uh, smoked it or ingested the flour for everything from health maintenance to spiritual uh, purposes. So that's always, I think I call it the Garden of Eden plant. It was what uh, anthropologists call a camp follower. It was something that before sedentary agriculture, when humans were semi-nomadic, we still planted crops, um, and, but only a few important seeds would fit into our pouches as we went from, let's say, a, a summer seasonal uh, location to a winter seasonal, and hemp was one of them. So we've always cultivated it for everything. Michael Pollan believes that we've co-evolved with the plant, and only in 1976 did, did some researchers in their words, arbitrarily decide that this certain level of THC, the psychoactive component of them, uh, would have, be, have a threshold of 0.3% by dry weight, um, above which would be considered this special new thing, you know, cannabis or, uh, you know, psychoactive cannabis or some, you know, we're moving away from marijuana as a word, which we should. And under 0.3 uh, was this new thing, uh, hemp. And we're, as we should be, uh, moving back to how it's always been for the last 8,000 8, years, which is it's all one thing because there's this, uh, the, the architecture of the plant has four components that are all immensely useful for a diverse range of applications. There's the flower, the, 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 the fiber, the seed, and the root. Root useful for building soil and phytoremediation. It's called very important in the world's um, soils that are very stressed due to climate change, or due to monoculture, and also mitigating climate change through sequestering carbon uh, from good agricultural practices through hemp's roots and other phytoremediative crops. Seed, as we said, was uh, superfood. Flowers, the hot market right now on all sides of the plant, um, dispensaries where all cannabis has been legalized and also for medicinal cannabis, emphasizing THC in combination with other cannabinoids and hemp, currently the sort of hot market, the gold rush is CBD, but THC and CBD are two of 111 known cannabinoids, many of which will be shown and are being shown to have um, value for a, a range of, of uh, uh, purposes. Um, and also, we're in our infancy of understanding the entourage effect, which is how the interplay of some of these cannabinoids and other components of the plants called terpenes um, 
work in our bodies. So the flour is very much in play. And then there's fiber, which is going to be huge as we move past petroleum and petrochemical products in all of our economy. So the very briefly on the fiber, there's two sides of the stalk. There's a, the strip, the, the bast fiber, the long strip of very strong fiber on the outside um, that is traditionally uh, used in everything from textiles and paper and now looks like has applications. My, one of my favorite things is next generation supercapacitors and the batteries that are going to be powering our electric cars that are going to be char charged by the sun. Our batteries are going to have components made out of hemp. Um, and then there's the herd, which is the inner core that's left on the fiber when the bast is stripped off. And that's a very hot market right now for everything from building um, carbon neutral, carbon negative housing, hempcrete as a general term, to uh, uh, microbial balanced animal bedding. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, uh, flood and spill cleanup and control. There's a lot of uses um, for the herd, which is sort of the low hanging fruit on the fiber. Fiber requires a lot of uh, acreage to be viable. And so we have all these components of the plant now, and they're all cannabis. And the only time where anybody should be thinking about it and worrying about it at all is if a final flower product, because all the cannabinoids, CBD, THC, all of them reside in the flower primarily. There's no, no CBD in the, in the fiber, none in the seed. It's going to market above a certain, ideally locally designated threshold of THC. It'll be regulated for adult use or medicinal use, below which it should make no difference at all. And this is very important because we should not be putting this 0.3 burden on the farmer. A lot of crops, in these early days are having to be destroyed because of this ridiculous arbitrary 0.3. If you're growing for seed or fiber, it shouldn't matter if you have 20% THC in your flower. If you're not marketing that flower, there's no THC in your final product. It should make no difference. So in the end, hashtag one plant. It's cannabis and hemp is the same plant. And for many of us, that's the end game, returning it to how it's always been. Well, as, as a former newspaper editor in Colorado who got to witness firsthand uh, legalization of cannabis in our state. I know that using that term cannabis as opposed to marijuana is important for a lot of people. Can you explain for our listeners why marijuana is sort of this fraught uh, and complicated word that probably should go by the wayside? Well, it's, its use really coincides with the 75 years of cannabis prohibition. Um, it was conjured up to evoke this sort of immigrant frenzy of, oh, these are the, before federal prohibition, the model of demonizing the plant was, was, um, was established in states like Arizona and California. And it was modified in the national media to be, create fear of African-American jazz musicians corrupting uh, 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 women. But it started as uh, Mexican laborers, you know, this, this, this uh, stereotype, the false stereotype of um, Mexican laborers corrupting um, people. And so that's where the term came from. And so it's a, it's a pejorative term. The cannabis plant, make no mistake, is uh, an extremely positive plant for humanity, always has been. It's hugely important for the economy, all sides of the plant. In reference to Colorado's legalization in 2012, then Governor Hickenlooper of Colorado opposed it. Um, he has a, uh, his business background is in alcohol. Um, he opposed the legalization. And now he's sort of been on this Mia Copa tour saying, it looks like it's going to work. It's awesome. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the nation. It's bringing in 100 million in tax funds uh, in the nation. So any negative connotation 
for cannabis is uh, on the wrong side of history. It's an extremely positive thing. We should be think of it as almost as a as a family value and a patriotic plant, as we have throughout uh, history, as the founding uh, fathers did. Of course, no one should be using the very small part of the cannabis plant that is potentially psychoactive unless they are an adult or have a medical need. But that's that's almost irrelevant. It's it, it the yes, anything can be abused. Uh, yes, we need to have laws to make sure that over certain amounts of THC, if they're going at retail level to the public, that they're regulated. But that's already in process. For the most part, hemp is just hemp cannabis is just another plant uh, that should be grown widely with minimal regulation. And that's the steps that we're taking. What, what, what has happened with the Farm Bill provision last December is saying this is not a plant any longer under the purview of the Justice Department. This has nothing to do with drugs or crime. This is under the purview of the Agriculture Department. This is a plant, and, and that's the right direction. Your, your passion for the subject really comes through in the book, and I'm curious, how, how did you become a hemp advocate, or, or do you see yourself that way? Primarily, I'm a journalist, but um, I, um, you know, every, everything, all politics, everything is, is personal, and um, there were a couple of things that happened that got me involved. The reason why I went to research my previous full cannabis book called Too High to Fail, which is about regenerative cannabis farmers in California's um, Emerald Triangle, it was because I live in a very, very remote part of New Mexico. Nobody comes where I live by accident. And everybody was minding their business as usual when suddenly one morning, my family was put into danger by automatic, hundreds of automatic weapons and, and people wielding them, ready to shoot them. Um, came into my very remote valley, and who were they? They were, I was paying for them. They were taxpayer-funded uh, interagency border narcotic control force of some kind going after my retired, uh, clean record um, uh, neighbor who was self-treating for PTSD and now is a perfectly legal cultivator in New Mexico. Uh, wasted all this money, put everybody in danger, took the guy to jail. His lawyer was waiting. He didn't spend a minute in jail as he, as he deserved not to. Um, he had the right, you know, ethnic background and, and, and bank account to not have to really suffer a, uh, the worst part of being a, a victim of America's worst policy since segregation, that is the war on cannabis. So he came home, dealt with it, paid his whatever it costs to get out of these kind of things, 12 grand. And um, I just said, this is ridiculous. We got, we've got real problems. We've got, at that point in 2010, 2011, when that happened, there was a, there a true war. There still is, but a true war just a few miles south of where I live in Mexico, because I'm in southern New Mexico, in southern New Mexico is where I live. There were thousands, thousands of people being killed. Every day, more than a few people were being killed. That's a war. And the war was because of cannabis and other pro drug prohibition. And yet we were spending our taxpayer dollars to arrest this peaceful, uh, self-medicating veteran. He was, it was PTSD from his wartime service. Uh, that that my neighbor was treating. So that's the the first thing that made me uh, get involved. And the second was climate change mitigation. Struck home in 2011 in my backyard. Everybody at this point has had some kind of event like this, no matter where they live on the planet. We had a 130,000 acre wildfire that stopped just short of our ranch, but it scared a crazed refugee, fledgling black bear into our property in front of my family's eyes. Uh, killed most of our goats. Put us all in danger. Freaked us all out. It affects our lives every day still. We have to be really, really careful. I lived for years in rural Alaska, never worried about predators. But now I have to keep a very close eye out on my human children as well as my goat kids um, all the time because of, of this, you know, 
what they would have one day recently called a millennial event, but which is now just part of stressed ecosystems. So, um, you know, I did some research and pretty much as an individual, the best thing you or I can do to uh, help stabilize climate is to plant hemp and other regenerative crops. So I, I, I'm not just a haircut president, I'm also, uh, you know, a member. So I, I report on it still, um, books, short form journalism, television, and then I'm actually planting it, developing a product, developing cultivars and living it and breathing it. Well, tell us a little bit about your, your operation. 40 acres, correct? Yeah, although we don't, cu- we don't cultivate that nearly that much hemp here. Um, this is the first year that New Mexico legalized. And most of my projects, whether it's whether I'm a consultant or a university researcher or for my entrepreneurial projects or seed development, are in other states and are still in other states. I'm excited to scale up more here. Um, you know, in the, in the home front just to help build regional economy. But um, this first year, I just could not plant having worked so hard for legalization nationally, but also in my state. And my state's done a great job. Our Department of Agriculture here in New Mexico, um, you can tell by how many people sign up for the first year of a program. And we have over 300 people in, in New Mexico paying 700 to $1,000, depending on, hey, there's some there's a range based on acreage and number of cultivars that you grow to cultivate hemp. So I you know, it's not like um, I'm just doing it for fun, but it's mainly it's fun. I'm just out there with my family um, growing a cultivar that I'm working on. We're doing some breeding to try to uh, enhance certain uh, properties in it. Um, We grow dioecious, which is male and female. It's how everyone has cultivated hemp for 8,000 years until 50 years ago when sensimia or seedless female only crops were developed. Um, that's because people have been trying to emphasize one cannabinoid, first THC, and then now there's a CBD craze. So people, whereas zero people grew uh, non-psychoactive hemp for Cincinnati style, uh, say 15 years ago, 80 to 90% of everywhere uh, in the U.S. now permit holders grow Cincinnati just for flour, just to get CBD. That's a gold rush. That's going to go away. Um, I'm sidestepping that. I'm growing male and female plants, my theory being everyone's happier when they're dating. And besides the fact that it gives a seed product, which is, you know, an omega superfood and all that good stuff, um, it also still produces flour um, in different cannabinoid ratios than Sensamia does. So um, it's just a way of, of sidestepping the herd and the gold rush and trying to create something that is durable and different and I, I think um, a little bit better. Well, since you, you've been doing this work yourself, how easy is it to grow hemp harvest it, process it. Um, as you detail in the book, there's, there is a learning curve. But where does a farmer start if they're curious about learning how to grow hemp? Cultivation is very easy in some ways and very difficult in other ways. The main thing is, like anything, if you're going to try and leap into it, especially professionally, it has to be your calling. You can't, you know, I'm sure you know, that, you know as a journalist, you, you can't just be like, ah, Sounds like fun. Maybe I'll be a journalist and I'll see what that. You have to really want to do that. It's not easy to succeed as a journalist. You have to be passionate and driven. And, um, and that's true um, for anything you do in life. And possibly maybe even a notch more true for anything that derives from a farm. Because you can't just plant seeds and you know, walk away. You have to be there paying attention to your field every day. And This is a farmer-based economy, at least for the best products, the kind of products that I would want to have in my family's life. And so um, the one thing 
for people who are on the consumer side uh, that that I like to say is really know your farmer really ask those questions you should not be walking into Walgreens and buying random CBD uh, eventually of course inevitably there's going to be you know mix CBD out there's going to be the hemp sandwich or whatever at the at the fast food joint but you you actually are really really wise as with all your anything you put into your body to be paying attention to regional and fair trade values but also things like organic certification and and mode of planting um it, this is a matter of opinion and hemp is a very big tent but for me outdoor cultivation is a basic baseline we were given incredibly complex soil and amazing sunlight and that's what agriculture is and it doesn't mean i don't think anything should ever be grown in a grow room or in a greenhouse there are reasons for it times of year for it but my what i look for in any kind of hemp cannabis product is outdoor organic uh, cultivation and the farmer being the entrepreneur so somebody that is marketing a cbd product who buys fungible cbd isolate from grown in who knows where anywhere from neck around the corner to ukraine to china that's not that's not a product i'm looking for i i want to see organic certification i want to see that i'm supporting a farmer um in my community so these are these are the most important values therefore to get back to your question of if you're getting started on the production end, it's very hard because you have to grow it, which isn't that hard, especially if you've got a green thumb and do your research, but you've got to be there every day paying attention to it. And then you and or someone in your family or organization has to be busting their tail about marketing and, and, and packaging and delivery and, and really getting out there to, to educate people because most people believe it or not, we, we who are familiar with, Hemp. We think everybody in the world must know about it. Everybody must be eating it. Everybody must know about CBD and the other cannabinoids. But in truth, 99% of American homes have zero hemp products in them. So education is a key part of every product. So it's much harder than farming has been in the past because you can't just grow a good product. You then have to, or concurrently, have to be getting um, it out to the world. So there's no time off. Well, so let's talk a little bit about farming hemp organically. How well suited is it to that practice? farming without pesticides and herbicides? Well, that part of it is, is no problem. The issue is every ecosystem is gonna be different. Um, and a lot depends on what your final application is growing for. Because if it's your business, you're growing for a specific application. So if you're marketing uh, chocolate covered hemp hearts, let's say, you wanna be maximizing seed production. That's a very different style of cultivation than if you're specifically growing flour for a combination of cannabinoids. Um, or just CBD, or some people even just market certain terpenes, which are other components of the, of the flower. So a lot depends on where you're growing, and a lot depends on how you're growing, what you're, uh, what you're growing for, and a lot depends on how much you're growing. For instance, um, at 10 or acres or under, or certainly under five or under, you, if you have enough reliable people on hand, can conceivably, functionally, and effectively hand plant and hand harvest a, pro a crop that actually can make a family or three a living. That's really unheard of in most agriculture for the last hundred years, that people have been going the other direction, scaling up into huge acreage. That said, if your plan is to wholesale organic hemp seed or to start a fiber cooperative so you can start making uh, hemp creator animal bedding, which is a really hot market, for that to be viable, you have to be growing on huge acreage, which requires a lot of farm equipment, not necessarily more work, so it's, it really depends on what you're growing for. The hardest to grow for is flour. That's like prima donna stuff 
any, any psychoactive cannabis farmer can tell you they're watching their crop every second and really tending those flowers because there's so much value in the flower. Whereas if you're growing 500 acres um, for seed, um, it's still hard work, but you're not worrying about manicuring um, every plant. Um, and when it comes to organic, that's really about soil preparation. And we're all, no matter what crop we're in, we're all soil farmers now. It's about prepping your, your, your um, crop and it's about thinking about the microorganisms that are under the soil. You think about that for months, ideally years, but at least like the winter before you're even thinking about planting in the spring. Be doing all the research that you can on what it takes to effectively um, build soil in an organic way. There are a lot of good ways of enhancing what we call these effective microorganisms, the good fungi and bacteria and other elements, nematode layer in your soil. Um, I'm, I still consider myself a novice at that side of it. But to give you one example, I and my family did go up into our hills to collect mycelium because if you embed and, and sort of seed your soil with the fungus from its own ecosystem, it tends not only to take better, but to last more. So you're having to do few less soil amending in coming seasons. So number one thing I'd say is focus for months before you even think about planting um, on building soil. If you've taken care of that step, the next step is making sure you're getting good and reliable genetics. Almost everybody who's coming into it fresh has some kind of issue with their initial genetics or the people who provided it. They get ripped off with genetics that aren't what they expected or they get overcharged or they don't plant it the right way or the right time. So unlike some of the more experienced farmers of other crops who go into hemp and can't believe all these quote greenhorns that go into hemp, I, I'm on a different way of thinking. While I do think it's vital to have a, a business game plan and to prep soil, I encourage anybody who wants to do it and who is willing to, to work at it hard for a couple of years before they see positive revenue, I would recommend go ahead and do it because we're at 1% of Americans making their living from farming today. It was 30% when cannabis prohibition started and 90% in Thomas Jefferson and George Washington's day when they were planting. So we absolutely need more people making their living from the soil, building soil and mitigating climate change. Soil health is an obsession with our listeners. That's, that's really what we focus a lot of our podcasts on. And I'm really curious to hear more about how hemp interacts with the soil. Uh, in the book, for example, you talk about its application in, in cleaning up the Chernobyl disaster. Yes. So hemp is not itself a, uh, let's say, a nitrogen fixer. In fact, as with most crops, it's wise to plant hemp in rotations. That said, there are fields in France and China that have been continually planted since the Middle Ages because people know how to rotate crops and, 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 and build crops and, and, and use bridge crops and all that kind of stuff. But um, the really interesting soil building, a phytoremediative component of hemp is its taproots. For an annual plant, it has unusually strong um, taproots. And what that does is really, it's an architectural thing. It's a manual thing. Hemp um, creates that aeration, that underground ecosystem that allows nitrogen building and other nutrient building crops to have the ideal neighborhood in which to thrive. So it works well in concert with other crops. So our overwinter crop before we planted our first crop here in New Mexico this year was kind of a vetch combination, a, a nitrogen building uh, crop. And then the only thing we added to our soil was uh, we we're lucky we, got, we, we feed our goats organically. So I've got tons of alfalfa mixed with goat poop. You couldn't ask for anything better to toss on your soil. And then I as I mentioned, we, we added the local mycelium, put some, do some, some trace minerals through kelp um, on there, certified organic kelp, kelp. But other than that, we're letting the soil do its own thing. And 
I'm liking our first crop here in New Mexico, but I anticipate even better crops in future now that hemp is starting to do its thing, which is to chunk those holes in the soil and, and allow um, that, that underground forest that is so vital to, to thrive. Break down the many uses of hemp. In reading the book, it seems like there's just endless promise there. CBD oil soaks up a lot of the attention, but there's a lot more to the story. Sure, I'll give you my favorite in each of the four parts of the plant. We already talked about roots. Phytoremediation and healing soil is the number one thing. It's going to mitigate, help mitigate climate change, clean up soil that's not just toxified from like super fundy stuff and nuclear disasters, but from really the worst damage to the soil, you know, acreage wise by the tens of millions of acres is, is a century of bad prag monoculture. Um, and so that, that's, that's the root. Um, you mentioned CBD, so I'll, I'll go next to flour. Um, hemp is a daily part of my family, my human and my non-human family's diet. It's just um, healthy food. Um, the flour side, the cannabinoids, you know, you have, to, one, you have to, one of the most important pieces of advice that I could give to anybody entering hemp, especially if they're thinking about an edible product or a flour product, is to not make any claims. That's that's just putting yourself at risk, even though it's true. M many of us, you come out with a product, you hope for the best, and all of a sudden you, people are telling you that you've changed their lives in a positive way, and it's a wonderful feeling and all that, but I don't put it on my, that on my labels because uh, you don't want to make claims. But it's just speaking personally and anecdotally, components in the hemp flower, and I don't think it's about milligrams of CBD per per unit. I think it's about that entourage effect we were talking about. Personally, I believe it's about, everybody's body's different, but it's about ratios of different cannabinoids, terpenes, bioflavonoids within that flower. Um, and then um, that can be really beneficial to people. And I'm not even talking about medicinally, when you're really talking about acutely fighting things, certain types of, you know, documented certain types of cannabinoids have been documented to be effective in combating horrible forms of childhood epilepsy or being cytotoxic, that is tumor reversing in certain types of cancer. Uh, research is early, early and all that. But aside from that, I'm just talking about health maintenance for people blessed with good health. The flower side's wonderful. Um, moving to seed, that's the real superfood. You can today get any kind of seed product, hemp hearts, uh, hemp seed oil, hemp protein meal in any good supermarket. I urge people, it's vital to, uh, to, to seek out organic certified hemp unless you're growing, you know, you're buying it at a farmer's market from your neighbor who isn't certified organic, but you know is not dumping glyphosate or other toxins on it because um, most non-organic hemp that's marketed commercially does have that kind of stuff applied. So you really want to be thinking about uh, organic, but it's a superfood. I eat it in every form, almost every day, hemp seed oil, hemp hearts, hemp protein, um, as, as do our, uh, non-humans. Um, so that's, that's, uh, and, and commercially we're moving towards animal feed, uh, recognizing that hemp is excellent. There's already studies that confirm that, but believe it or not, we have human, uh, certification is generally regarded safe before we have it in livestock, although it is legal to feed to your own livestock, not to your commercial livestock that others may eat. You can, for instance, feed it legally, um, to let's say your dogs and horses, but not to cattle or pigs or chickens that you, uh, whose meat and eggs or meat you might sell. And that's, that's going to change. In fact, I have an email in my inbox today from the working group that's involved in the animal feed uh, effort. So that'll be taken care of soon. So now we've talked flower roots and seed. My favorite application from the uh, fiber, I'll, I'll give you one from each side of the fiber, from that inner core, that herd. I love the, the, uh, the, 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 the construction dynamic. 
um, really we use way we, we we contribute a huge amount to climate change and, and um, uh, carbon use and, and uh, um, fossil fuel use through our construction industry and hemp based building with the core of the herd is it's magnificent it's a really effective building and it's it's in its infancy and has a lot of growing pains to go through in terms of getting certified by building agencies and other elements to it. It's not necessarily as plug and play as today's kind of stick drywall building is, but it's superior when done right. And it's going to be different for climate. Like where I live in the Southwest, there's going to be much more Adobe style hemp versus um, uh, more similar to sort of wood building in a Pacific Northwest type environment. Um, and then um, last and my favorite hemp application is the research that's going into from the vast fiber, the uh, next generation battery components. Long story short, because there's a lot to this, ideally we want to be moving away from rare earth stuff and from, from, um, from other non-regenerative components of our digital age lifestyle, but we'd like to keep those components. So um, biomaterials such as hemp are an important part of it. And hemp itself, just one of the nice evolutionary um, traits that the hemp fiber at the nano level um, is showing is actually the most effective um, next generation supercapacitor material yet discovered. It outperforms everything else, often much more toxic materials. When it comes to the rapidity with which you can charge your batteries, that's what we're talking about as of now with hemp. We're not talking about holding a charge longer necessarily, that part of your battery. We're talking about the supercapacitor part, which is getting the batteries that are powering our solar powered cars and homes on uh, factories and everything on um, charge more quickly. And that's where hemp is showing a lot of promise. And that's probably my favorite fiber application. You also mentioned in the book, um, hemp is a renewable energy source. Yes. So in hemp bound, um, the, you know, so I'm working on this and almost finished with the next book working title hemp found um, in hemp bound. Um, I was really excited. And it's still am. Um, an anaerobic combustion mode for energy that's being used in Europe um, uh, called gasification. And it's, it's cool because it emits very little carbon, but it still is combustion. And it is because hemp is so quickly renewable because you can be regrowing it annually. It can provide a lot of energy to innovative grids systems under sort of today's way of doing things. But after Hempbound came out is when this research was revealed about the supercapacitor stuff. And I'd like to see us move beyond combustion overall and rather just be having batteries that themselves are regenerative, being charged from the sun and charging our devices rather than having to burn anything. In, in your book, you introduce us to some of the modern pioneers of hemp production in the U.S. and, and, and also you know, people who own companies like Dr. Bronner's Soap. Um, who are really sort of creating markets and fighting the good fight. In particular, it's fascinating how David Bronner fought the government and won. Um, you, could, you could tell that story, um, or if there are other people who are sort of blazing a path here that you want to feature, you're welcome to do that too. Well, I'll tell you, anybody who gets into hemp today is still a pioneer. We're, we're at um, in these 150,000 acres in 2019. That's nothing. Um, compared to the millions of acres, 89 point something for corn alone. Um, so you're my hero if you get into regenerative organic hemp cultivation today, cultivate outdoors and think about regenerative techniques from everything from how you farm 
to how you distribute, then you're my hero. Um, but as far as people that are already in the industry, um, and, you know, we all have our rock stars and it's, you know, people doing the battery research. You mentioned Dr. Bronner's. Yeah, I mean, I, I use that soap um, every day. And they're, they're also explicitly as a company using the lessons of the plants to run a righteous company where there's only, you know, whatever amount of times higher that the CEO makes than the lowest paid employee and, you know, good profit sharing and all that business. So it's, it's not just how you cultivate, it's how you run your business. And then you, you have a great uh, product like people like uh, Dr. Bronner's and, and Nutiva uh, do. Um, since writing Hempound and since the industry has really taken off, I would say that my real heroes are the people that are proving that small acreage, small acreage entrepreneurial hemp can actually be viable. You know, I'm primarily, I'm very proud of my product and my, as everybody should be, my own product is my favorite product. That's how it should, should Ed, Ed Rosenthal, the famous cannabis grower always says, you know, what's, what's the best herb you've ever had? Your own. And, and it's true. Um, but if I'm somewhere else and I, oops, I dropped a bottle on my own and I need to find hemp, I am seeking out someone in that, let's say I'm in uh, uh, um, South Carolina. I'm seeking out hemp from a company, let's say called Palmetto Harmony, where a mother who had to get into hemp, had no cannabis hemp experience, but her daughter, severe epilepsy, that traditional modes or what we call traditional modes weren't helping, found that hemp helped, couldn't get a supply, started a company and just does it right. Certified organic, you know, uh, complete vertical, everything is in a product they grow. Those are my heroes, people that do it like that. And there's more and more. And I, I advise everyone, I, I hope everyone will first and foremost, look for those kind of products in their own community and in their own region. And then secondly, if you get really into it, then kind of treat it the way that, that, that wine connoisseurs or, or cheese connoisseurs do, which is look for the specialty products and, and especially shops where there's a, a, a terpene cannabinoid combination that you're not used to or a solar powered farming operation. Or, or that, all of these things exist, by the way. So that you're always supporting something that's that's uh, independent farmer and and um, a top shelf organic product. Doug, what's the current legal situation for hemp? Well, we're having this conversation in August of 2019, and my hope is that if people are listening to this, let's say by 2021, maybe sooner, that everything that we're about to say is going to be dated because all cannabis will be completely legal. The fed, federal government and federal regulations will be out of the, the cannabis game and it will be up to states and localities to regulate all cannabis, regardless of its THC level. So what we today call cannabis, what we today call hemp, that will be 100% in the state's hand, hands to decide. And um, you know, there may be a few exceptions, like cannabis over a certain THC level, if it's engaged in interstate commerce, might be have so, something to do with, with you know federal oversight but even today hemp is 100 percent commercially legal as of last december when the second farm bill provision passed there's no more research provision it's commercially legal what's happening now is what we all have to keep an eye on especially as independent entrepreneurs and independent farmers is that the usda and the fda which made clear that they're the new sheriffs in town with the uh freeing up of uh, folks like the uh, dea to work on pharmaceutical you know, crimes and opioid addiction and all that business, you know, since we've started from this conversation, many people have died of alcohol related causes, opiate related causes. Nobody's ever died from cannabis. So it's a good thing that cannabis is out of, uh, almost totally out of the federal purview, which is human, but it is totally out of the federal purview if it's got 0.3% of THC or less at the final product. So we've got a, that, that the USDA 
and the FDA say that they're going to start issuing their regulations in time for the 2020 planting season. And we got to keep a very close eye on that because when you look at the, the lobby groups and the people that are trying to influence this policy, unsurprisingly, it's a lot of folks that are trying to play the same game as agriculture has been going for the last uh, century. And we're, we're saying this time the farmers are in charge. So if there are regulations that don't work for independent producers, in other words, if it's a, if it's a model of regulation from, from our federal agencies that forces the kind of ultra pasteurization and, and sort of homogenization that we see in so many of our other food products, we're not playing that game. We're, we're selling li a living product, those of us who want to, and um, we're gonna, we're, we are the heart and the largest component, we independent farmers, of the young hemp industry. And our challenge is to organize in such a way that our voices are heard and that if we don't like the initial regulations that we're seeing, if they favor big ag, if they, if they, if they favor anonymity, for instance, and in where in sourcing of hemp, where it could come from anywhere, be produced anywhere with whatever kind of pesticides or, you know, we, that we say, no, no way, that's not, we're not playing that game. The farmers are in charge and we're gonna make the regulations the way that we want them. And here's something that I hope folks will keep in mind. Because hug a prohibitionist, because because we've had 75 years, really 81 years of our our plant being off the above ground market, we're not tied to any ball and chain of the way agriculture has been done before. So when you hear people say, "Oh well, you can't do that for hemp because that's not all such and such corn and cotton and wheat and this," is the answer is, "Well, how's that working out for the corn farmers? Why why is there farm aid? There's farm aid because it's not working out for the farmers." We're doing it differently, and we're starting from scratch. We don't have any attachment to any way that agriculture has been done for the last 81 years. Here's how we're doing it, and you're doing it our, our way, or we're gonna get you replaced. And the great news is, quite a lot of our politicians are on our side. The tipping point has been reached, and quite a lot of our regulators being agriculture departments, they're farmers. So they have innate sympathy towards farmers and they know that farmers are struggling and they know that monoculture doesn't work. And so we, I'm ca cautiously optimistic that we are going to see small acreage farmer friendly regulations evolve. I don't think we necessarily are gonna love the first set of regs that come out in time for the 2020 season for, by USDA or FDA, but if we don't, we'll change them. Let's talk numbers for a minute. What does hemp sell for? What's the worldwide market in terms of dollars? And how big could it get? It's going to get huge. Um, the issue is, are the farmers going to um, make the money? So um, starting with the current gold rush, CBD is a gold rush. And in any gold rush, the prospectors don't make the money. The middlemen, the shovel makers um, make the money. Um, and there's bursts of exuberance. And then, and then there's correction, as they call it. And so the prices that are, let's say, wholesale flower prices for CBD cultivars right now, they're, they're short-lived. They're high, almost psychoactive cannabis high. Um, you could get between $200 and $1,500 a pound for your flower, and you could harvest potentially 1,000 pounds per acre, meaning if you do the math, 1,000 times 200, like that's theoretically a very, very good crop on just a few acres, but that's not how it's good. If you're putting your eggs in that basket, you're going to go bankrupt in a couple of years in my view, because gold rushes don't last. So there's always going to be CBD grown, but as the, you know, the crap products, the, the mass products um, become fungible, independent farmers aren't going to be able to churn out and find markets for their wholesale. Their wise move is to have a slow, steady growth plan, market a product that's different in some way 
than any, what anybody else is doing. And there, then you have a long-term capacity to make a good lucrative living. I like to talk about Kevin Hart, the comedian, noticing when he made it that in his neighborhood, it wasn't actors and comedians, it was dentists and lawyers, right? He's like, oh, my kids, I want them to be dentists and lawyers. That's how you get in the good neighborhood. I want that to be farmers, a really strong, solid, mid six figure or more living for growing a good product. It's not a gold rush. You got to work hard every year, but you're making a, you know, a really good living as an independent farmer. That's, that's my goal. And so we just, that was just the flower side growing organic for seed right now. If you sell whole, this, this is more appropriate for folks that maybe are growing, you know, sections, what they call thousands of acres in the, uh, uh, heartland, let's say, or North Dakota, Minnesota farmer growing 3,000 acres. It's not that much harder to grow 3,000 acres of hemp for seed than it is to grow 100 acres for seed. And if you grow 3,000 acres and you grow it organically, there's probably a long-term stable market, I hope I'm right about this, at the roughly the $1 a pound uh, uh, level. Uh, conservatively, the new normal is a uh, thousand uh, pounds harvested per acre. So at 3,000 acres, that's 3,000 pounds. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, a ton, right, right, right. Sorry, 1,000 pounds per acre. So 3,000 acres times 1,000 um, is a third of a million dollar gross at $1 a pound wholesale. So even though I don't recommend uh, farmers wholesale, at large acreage, which is what we need for the seed and fiber side, there is a long-term potential lucrative market for your, and not only that, but you're building soil, fighting climate change um, for uh, hemp in the uh, seed and fiber side. Um, Canada and China are the global leaders in hemp production. H how did that come to be? Canada legalized first in 96, and God bless them, they grew the seeds that was pressed into the organic hemp oil that provided the prenatal care of a lot of the prenatal health in my own family for my own sons. And that's great. Can the Canadians until I think last year were focused 90% on seed. They burned the fiber in the field and the flower side wasn't legal for them to do. So they're scrambling. Um, and I, you know, I, I, um, I hope they do well. Um, I hope everybody does well, but Canada's early lead was because they focused on seed and they started in the nineties. I think the genetics are, Michael Pollan calls America's cannabis farmers the best gardeners of his generation. I agree. I think that, that I'm, uh, uh, I'm not trying to be jingoistic here, although I am a patriot. I would say I'm speaking as objectively as a journalist can when I say look to America to be the, the hemp uh, a leader. China has been the leader, especially on the fiber side, because uh, for a lot of reasons, um, labor costs, not a lot of prohibition angst, you know, not a lot of de uh, reefer madness. And uh, they hand harvest a lot, even at large acreage, which leads to better fiber. And so the, China has a large fiber lead um, that may or may not um, continue. But, uh, you know, I like to see things as, as locavore as possible. The research for this book took you all over the world. Tell us about some of those adventures and, and what you learned and what surprised you. Farmers have the same concerns all over the world, and the cannabis hemp reemergence is a worldwide phenomenon. When I speak to farmers who are from Morocco or Belgium or Uruguay, North Dakota, and Alaska, they're saying the same thing, which is we want to be able to make a good living. We want to help build soil and build communities. You know, we're doing it differently this time. Get out of our way regulatory-wise. 
Um, so you're hearing this all over the world. An important lesson that I learned was during research in Belgium, I noticed that there were two 10 hectare plots, caddy corner of hemp, different cultivars. You could tell they would look different, kind of different growing patterns, different culture, uh, colors. And I asked the farmer that I was visiting who one of those, are you worried about the two cultivars um, cross-pollinating? And she said, no, we're not reinventing agriculture here. This is how farmers always work. I mean, this is nothing different and magical that's been going on. So the lesson that I took away from this is we now have, with cannabis sensory emergence, a lot of different ways that people are growing. Growing flour for psychoactive, growing flour for non-psychoactive, growing seeded crops for seed, growing seeded crops for fiber, um, fiber remediation. Bottom line, humans have been cultivating this plant for 8,000 years. They've been growing it sensomia style for maybe 40 years, and they've been growing hemp for sensomia style for maybe 10 years. No one mode has predominance over any other mode. If one mode has predominance, it would be the mode that's been grown for 8,000 years that's gonna be large acreage and save humanity through climate change mitigation. But no, it's all equal. Every farmer has a freedom to farm how he or she wants, where he or she wants, and making sure that that is a successful enterprise for everyone, and I like all sides of the cannabis plant, making sure that's a successful enterprise for everyone is about good communication and good farming skills. That's primarily what it's about. After every successful revolution, or most in history, you see the winners turning on each other. And that's what we've got to avoid here. Recognize we are all welcome to grow what kind of cannabis hemp we want, wherever we want it, at any time. And we're not reinventing agriculture. The key is communication, cooperation, and good agricultural skills as we evolve into a professional industry. Well, there's, there's obviously a lot of really positive things happening around hemp production, but what trends or developments within the hemp boom worry you or concern you? The only one that really worries me is over, well, there's two. I'd say non-organic cultivation needs to go away. Everybody must cultivate in a regenerative way, everything, because otherwise we, we go away as a species, the earth will be fine. The, the other thing though is, is over-regulation is what needs to be avoided. And, and as we discussed a little bit earlier, that's just about making sure that the small farmer voice is heard. Um, and that's about, uh, I don't know how we're gonna do that because when you get to the national level, it tends to be all about lawyers and lobbyists and not about farmers. And if they're representing farmers, they tend to be represented by big farmers, the kind of people that have um, a lot of money going in. And so one way or another, we've got to make sure that there is a countercurrent to this. There's a global food certification movement on now that's sort of like the NAFTA of food certification. And there's some positive things about it, namely that you can be sure that, you know, you're not going to or hopefully not going to have a small, you're going to have a small chance of getting, let's say, a salmonella from, from your spinach or whatever. But on the other hand, it's regulating people out of existence. And like so much high altitude regulation, it doesn't allow for the kind of product that I and millions of people want, which is living products cultivated by independent farmers. So we've got to make sure that there are entire industry sectors for the craft producers that are uh, allowed up to, let's say a million, I'm just throwing a number out there, a million pounds of product uh, per year, you're able to cultivate in this way that doesn't force you into sort of the hemp version of ultra pasteurization. That's, that's something we got to really 
keep an eye on is, is unnecessary over, over regulation. We all want food to be safe, but we're not uh, all in the robo food game. What about genetically modified hemp? Is, is that in development? Is that a concern for you? It's so far from what I or anybody who thinks remotely like me would ever consider for their own food that it's not personally a concern. Without a doubt, there, are, um, there is some research into it that I could give a couple of examples. But for the most part, it's very off-brand for hemp. Hemp is already associated with healthy lifestyles. And people who live healthy lifestyles are on to glyphosate. They're on to, to GMO uh, and monoculture mentalities. And so I hope that it will never happen on the marketplace. If, and if it for some reason appears and is legal, that it would um, uh, fail. But bottom line, I want to see commercial hemp associated with organic hemp. And if that's the case, in other words, if today what we consider kind of like alternative being organic food becomes the normal, the, 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 the conventional for hemp, then the GMO is off the table to begin with because you can't have organic products that are GMO. You know, here in Colorado, I can go down to the apothecary and get really high-end CBD oil. But I can also go to the gas station, the loaf and jug, and they're selling CBD oil on the counter, a uh, lot cheaper. How, how can consumers sort of spot what represents quality and sort of the values that you're about and the stuff that is merely cashing in on a, on a trend? I think the craft beer market is a good model for this. Overall beer sales are down, but the craft market is in the $20, $30 billion range and growing every year, taking up more space because it tastes better and it's better quality and people know it. So that's a mentality that, that I'd like to see. I mean, you've got one strike in your, you've got, well, let's put it this way. One thing going in your favor, if you're shopping at a farmer's market or a food co-op and one strike against you, if you're walking into a corner store for your hemp in the first place, because the way distribution channels generally work for a quickie mart is not the same way that your local food co-op with which if it's really a cooperative, it has a mandate, one of the co-op principles is supporting regional enterprises and, and the regional economy and community. So it becomes much easier to, to seek out low carbon mile and organic food just by choosing the, the venue where you shop. But you know that's that example of you're, you're on the road and you drop your bottle of, uh, of uh, whatever you like to take for, for your hemp cannabis um, each day and you've got to go into a store and buy it um, and you can't find a local food. I mean, we've all got Yelp in our phones, right? Like find a local food co-op and that's your best gen. But if you can't, then don't you know, find a whole, a whole foods or an organic supermarket um, so that you know something's going to be organic. And if you are really desperate and walk into a corner store, if you can't find a product that is clearly saying on the label that all the hemp is grown organically relatively nearby, I, I would argue, except in the case of extreme medical need, you're better off not buying it and waiting till you can get to one of those other platforms. So hemp, it's, it seems to me, my perception is that hemp is sort of a high-end product. It's expensive. Do you see that changing and, and should it change? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, do, I like to call this the non-poison surcharge and it's not just hemp. You know, again, I, 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 my hugest expense, I mean, far and away, even though we've got goats in the garden, my hugest expense in my family is, is food because we go 
when we make our rare town trips a couple times a month, we spend a lot of money <laughs> on good food at our food co-op. We've got posters of us in our food co-op with how much money we spend there. And we're real believers in, you know, pay the grocer now and not the doctor later, right? And there's a lot of factors that go into that. So this is your know, grace of God kind of thing. But, but we're trying to do our part, you know, eat well and exercise and have love in your life and think positively. And um, so we're used to paying more, that non-poison surcharge today. And it's really about consumer demand. When consumers are demanding more of a product, eventually the price will go down. But it's, it's a double-edged sword. You want your food prices to, to have a certain price point so that farmers are being paid well. You know, lost in this, this crazy, stupid, anti-immigrant hysteria BS that's going on in our country right now is the, if there weren't people that were willing to be paid farm working prices, wages, how much higher even the crappy food prices would be. Um, and so the reality is the farm economy is a very, very complex economy. It's not free market. There's so many factors going in between farm labor and, and subsidies of certain crops and not other crops and so many factors. But in the end, I would say, yeah, I'll, I'll speak for my own product. I would like to see my own product as it gradually scales up to gradually scale down in price. But there always are going to be top shelf farm. I and my partners and my fellow farmers and my, for my product, we work really hard. We love that crop from soil prep through 10, fast forward 10 months through harvest and this long ex extensive decarboxylation process for, for infusing our product, which is unusual and time consuming. It deserves, we deserve to make a living from it. And there are other products that are gonna be maybe faster to make that are gonna be lower priced. So yeah, I wanna see healthy products of all kinds be accessible to everybody, you know, not just people with, with income. And if you work hard and at everything and are the best at what you do, you deserve to make a living from it. Okay, so you're, you're writing a sequel. You're in the middle of writing a sequel to Hemp Bound. What's left to explore? Well, a huge amount. I feel I'm so eager for this next book to come out because Hemp Bound was written, uh, it came out two months after the first 2014 Farm Bill. So essentially on the same exact time that the first federally legal hemp farms were started. It was all researching what, it was a blueprint. Like this is what uh, Willie Nelson was kind enough to blurb. Um, so he, he called it a blueprint for the America of the future. Very, I, I love that. I, I think about it a lot and feel great about it. So it's a blueprint. It's sort of a high altitude sketch of what will happen based on research and based on what was happening in other parts of the world that were ahead of US legalization. Almost immediately after that book came out, hemp was de facto legalized with that first federal farm bill research provision. So I actually quickly did on hemp paper a second follow-up monograph that I still sell over my, off my website called First Legal Harvest, which actually contains some of the hemp from the first farmers who grew legally in the US um, and talks about what those first farmers um, were doing. And then I became one of those farmers and I've spent the last five years researching, filming, and being this first wave farmers. And that's what the, the, this new book uh, coming out in April 2020, working title, Hemp Found, it might change. It's, uh, it's really um, the challenges and opportunities 
for an independent regenerative entrepreneur, how to make it in hemp if your goal is to do it on relatively small acreage, build soil, build community, still make a living. Your end game is not buy out by hedge funds or going public. Your end game is a long-term multi-generational enterprise that does well by your family and your community. That's, that's what the new book's about. There you have it. Doug Fine, bring in the fire. Go buy his book. It's published by Chelsea Green Publishing. It has a quote from Willie Nelson on the cover. And it's available at the Acres USA bookstore at acresusa.com. Thanks again to our listeners and our sponsor, BCS America. You can find this podcast at ecofarmingdaily.com, acresusa.com, or anywhere podcasts can be played. Thanks, and have a great week.